because of the unknown nature of this book and how it's understudied by a lot of people and as well there's controversy related to the book of Esther I'll spend a few minutes uh, longer than usual on the introductory matters concerning this book and then we'll go into our study of the first chapter regarding the book of Esther uh, among some people among some Jews uh, for some time it has been their favorite book outside of the Law of Moses. Their favorite part of the Bible is the Law of Moses, Moses' writings. But after that, among some Jews, the book of Esther is their favorite. However, among other people, some skeptics, some in the Christian fold, some in the Jewish fold, some from other religions, when they read the book of Esther, they hate it. They absolutely despise it. And they wonder why such a book would be in the Bible. They have the very opposite reaction. Well, in the contents of the book, there are reasons to have one view or the other, or at least purported reasons to hate the book as well. In the book, in the first chapter, the king of Persia, whose name is Ahasuerus in the uh, most translations of the Bible, Ahasuerus is his name. He holds a great banquet and a banquet that includes wine. He has many people there, many of his nobles, many of his officers present. Well, at a point in the banquet, at the end of the banquet, he wants the queen, Queen Vashti, to come and display her beauty. Well, she refuses to do so. The king then consults his advisors, and they say that she should be deposed as queen, and then another queen should be sought out uh, throughout all his domain in order to replace her. And that's what he pursues. In chapter 2, we find that he does send his officials to find beautiful women throughout his realm, and Esther is one of them that comes. Finally, by the uh, middle of the book, the, the, the king chooses Esther as the queen. He loves her and likes her more than all the other women that had been chosen. Before the end of the second chapter, we have a plot against the king's life. There is a man named Mordecai, Mordecai, a relative of Esther, who hears of this plot, the assassination plot. Two of the king's officials want to assassinate him. He reports that, and it's conveyed to the officials, to the other officials, and they investigate the plot, and they found that it was indeed true. So those two men were executed for their assassination attempt. Well, then we come to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, there's a man, an official, in the court of King Ahasuerus, king of Persia, and Medea. This man's name is Haman, or Haman. This, this man, he is one of the, the better of, or higher officials, and he is one who uh, is calling for others to do homage to him and bow down to him. Others are supposed to do that. The other officials, the other servants of the king are supposed to do that. Well, one of the servants of the king, Mordecai, a Jew, he refuses to do that. He refuses to do it presumably because there was worship involved. There was an acknowledgement of the deity of this official involved. And because of Mordecai's faith, he refused to do so. He didn't want to bow down because of that reason. Well, this infuriates Haman. Haman then consults the king and the king's officials to issue a decree to massacre and completely destroy all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. On a certain day of the month, he casts lots. He casts lots. A lot is called poor or plural, porim. He casts lots to determine the day and the month of the year in which this massacre would occur. And so there's about 12 months that transpire between the issuance of this decree and the actual date of carrying it out. And when this is made known, it's made known not only in the capital, Susa, Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, at least at this time in history it was. It's not only made known there, 
It's also made known throughout his whole kingdom. Mordecai, he learns of this decree. For some reason, Esther did not know of it. Mordecai learns of it, and even the Jews in Susa, the capital, they learn of it, and they are all disgusted. They're all uh, tormented, and they put on sackcloth, ashes, tear their clothes, they fast, they weep, they wail. There's great confusion in the city. Mordecai then sends a message to Esther to inform her of this edict or decree of the king. Really, it's the decree of Haman, and the king approves of it. It has his stamp of approval. When Esther first hears this, she hesitates. She balks. She says, I can't just go into the king and appeal. I can't just uh, show up. Otherwise, he might execute me because we're not allowed to go to the king unless we are summoned by the king. Except if the king extends grace and mercy to the one who attempts to come without permission. Well, Mordecai says that she has to go. And if she doesn't go, that deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. Mordecai has faith that whether it's by Esther's means or by someone else's means, there's going to be deliverance. This cannot happen and will not happen, according to providence. Esther understands, and Esther says, All right, let's all pray and fast for three days and three nights. They do. Esther and her maids do so, and Mordecai and others, they all do so. In chapter 5, after these three days of fasting, Esther gathers up courage to approach the king, to approach the king unsummoned. And when she approaches, the king extends grace to her, does not call for her execution. And then he asks her what her request is, what would bother her, what would concern her so much to come into his presence. And she says that she would like to prepare a banquet for the king, Ahasuerus, and his official Haman to attend, a banquet for just the two of them. So they agree. They agree to go to Esther's banquet. And while at the banquet, she's asked by the king, what is your request? And she says, well, I have another banquet tomorrow. Please come to that one, and then I'll tell you what my request is. So the next day also, a banquet is planned. Between the first and second banquets, Haman is uh, thoroughly enjoying this attention and this glory and honor. And he goes home and he consults with his friends and his wife about what to do with this Mordecai the Jew. Because every time Haman passes Mordecai, Mordecai refuses to do homage, religious homage, to Haman. And Haman is still infuriated and wants the death of Mordecai. Well, they suggest, in chapter 5, they suggest that he make a gallows 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, and request that Mordecai be hanged on the, the gallows. Request that. Well, that same night after the first banquet, the king could not sleep. He couldn't sleep, so he called for his officials to bring boring books. The book of records, the book of records of the kings of uh, Persia and Medea, to bring these books so that he could read about what kind of activities and incidents have occurred and that he could fall asleep perhaps by that means. Well, it was read to him that there were two officials of the king who attempted to assassinate him. The plot was discovered and then they were hanged. But the informant, Mordecai, was unrewarded. The king said, what was done for him? And they said, nothing has been done for him. He said, well, something has to be done for him. He needs to be rewarded. And the reward, he gives Haman, who sees him the next day. He, Haman comes and sees the king, and he says, the king says to Haman, what should we do for someone that the king wants to honor? And Haman thinks, who else would he want to honor except me? So Haman's answer is, in chapter 6, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, 
and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed, and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be to the man whom the king desires to honor. Let that happen. The king says, That's a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai the Jew. You, Haman, go do that for Mordecai the Jew. Well, he does so. He's forced to do so. And then he goes home. He hurried home, it says, mourning and his head covered. Haman goes home. He tells this to his wife, Zeresh, and, and their friends. And they say this. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And that's exactly what happens. At the second feast, which happened the next day, at that second feast, Esther announces her request. She says that if it was just that we were sold into slavery, I would not bother you. However, we have been sold to be killed and annihilated. To be killed and annihilated. The king answers, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? And the queen answers, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. The other man at the feast, sitting by the king. He is the one who would presume to do such a thing? A foe and a wicked man. Well, the king is enraged. He later, a few minutes later, he finds that Haman is there begging for his life before Esther, and he thinks that he's trying to abuse her uh, or assault her, and he orders for his execution. And where is he executed? He's executed on the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai. A complete reversal of circumstances. Well, after that, Mordecai is promoted. Mordecai is promoted, and then Esther approaches the king again and asks for a decree to avert the evil, the annihilation of the Jewish people. The king agrees. He says, let it be done, let Mordecai write it, let it be distributed throughout the kingdom, and let it have the king's signet ring and approval on it. And what is this decree of reversal? There is no way in the Persian and, and Median uh, legal system to, to reverse or actually to abolish a decree. But you can issue another decree to help mitigate the consequences of the previous one. And that's what's done. And what was it? The initial decree, the one that Haman instituted, that one said that the enemies of the Jews could attack the Jews on a certain date. Which implies that they could help the, have the help of the officials and the military of the Persian Empire. Well, this other decree, the second decree issued by Mordecai and Esther, it says that the Jews on that same date have permission to defend themselves against anyone who might attack them. They have permission to defend themselves from anyone who might attack them. Notice there that if their enemies hated them enough to actually attack them, although they knew the Jews had uh, their own decree to be able to defend themselves and presumably to have the help of the Persian authorities to defend themselves, then the Jews could do so if they were attacked. Well, that date comes. It's the 12th month of the Jewish calendar. And on that month, the date arrives, their enemies attack, and the Jews, they defend themselves. And when they defend themselves, they have the victory over their enemies. Not only did they have the victory over their enemies, but they now instituted a decree or they instituted a new law, a new festival called the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim. Purim, taken from the word lot or lots that Haman had cast, 
taken from that word, now that word that was an evil word now has become a good word for them because they have the victory over their enemies. So they name it the Feast of Purim. This is uh, one of the feasts that is not in the law of Moses instituted later in the history of the Hebrew nation. This has the authority of Mordecai, it has the authority of Esther, and it's implemented from that date forward. Approximately in the 5th century BC, about 400 to 500 years before the ministry of Christ, around that time is when these events occurred. From that time onward, the Jewish people, and even today, the Jewish people practice this festival. Mordecai is exalted again after this, and he has the favor of the Persian officials and the favor of all the Jewish people. And it says that he recorded these events to commemorate what had happened. Well, that's a summary of the contents of the book. Now, you can see why there would be some animosity from people who think that there is a problem with this book. The misinterpreters, the skeptics, and the enemies of the Jewish people and of the faith, even the Christian faith, they misunderstand and twist and distort the contents of the book. This is not about Jewish vengeance and a desire for bloodthirstiness or anything like that. If we understand the contents correctly, it was a permission for the Jews to defend themselves against anyone who might attack them. That's what's written in the decree, in the second decree, the decree of Mordecai. It's written there again, so that anyone who might attack them, the Jews might defend themselves. So this is not the Jews going around looking for trouble and looking to murder and massacre people. They weren't looking to do any of that. They were living their lives as slaves to the Persian Empire when Haman is the one who instigated the first decree to massacre them. So this is actually a matter of self-defense. Also notice that the second decree gave them permission to plunder the spoil of their enemy. It says in 8.11, it says to plunder their spoil in chapter 8, verse 11. However, in chapter 9, when they had the opportunity to plunder the, the spoil of their enemies, they didn't do so. Which means they weren't greedy and covetous people. They had the per legal permission to do so, but they said, we're not going to do so. Chapter 9, verse 15. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. They didn't do it. They showed restraint. They had permission, and it would have been just fine in normal warfare to plunder one's enemies. But in this case, it shows their self-restraint and virtue that they weren't really about any of all this stuff. They were really about just preserving their own lives. Another reason why there are critics and skeptics of this book, they say that there is nothing religious in the book and there's no mention of God in the book. How could this book be in the Bible? How could it be a book of any authority and canonicity? How could it even be here when there is no, nothing religious and no mention of God here in the book? Well, to answer that objection, I'd like to say that there are times in the Bible when God is implied but not explicitly mentioned. He's implicitly mentioned, but not explicitly mentioned. Let me give you a couple of examples. Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9. You know that throughout this book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah himself, the governor, he has short prayers to God. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9, for all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. 
But now, O God, strengthen my hands. If your Bible has the practice of italicization of words that are implied but not in the original text, you will notice that your Bible has O God or God italicized. If it's italicized, it means it's not in the original text. That would mean that when Nehemiah prayed this particular prayer, he did not even say God, this brief one-sentence prayer. He just said, but now strengthen my hands. Implicitly, he's praying to God, and it's obvious. And some of our Bibles make it more clear by putting God there in italics. One more example is 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1, this is a lament or a dirge written by David to lament the death of Saul and Jonathan and Jonathan's brothers. When they died in battle, David wrote this prayer and it's written, it says in verse 18, it is written in the book of Jashar or Yashar, book of the upright. That's what Yashar means, book of the upright. And if you scan verses 19 to 27, David is grieving and implicitly he understands the work of God here and his relationship to God and what God has done in the nation Israel and how it, at this point he gave victory to the Philistines. All of that is clearly understood. But if you scan from verses 19 to 27, there is no mention of God at all. No God, no Lord, no Almighty, no, no words for God at all. We would not accuse David of being a secular man. We would not accuse him of being irreligious or anything of that nature. So I believe in the same way that even though the name of God is absent in the book of Esther, it does not necessarily mean that the author of the book was a secular, irreligious, or anti-religious man. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, let me give you a few examples within the book of Esther of religious references. Religious references. Implicit religious references. The first one, and this may be the weakest one, but if, as you see my cumulative argument, I think you might see why the first one might fit. The first one is in chapter 2, Esther 2, verse 7. Esther 2, verse 7. And he, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and her father and her mother died. Uh, when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. As well in verse 15, 2.15. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, so forth. In both of these references, it's clear that Mordecai had received Esther, Hadassah, her original name, had received her into his own household. He had adopted her. Now, it is true that people of various religions and even sometimes irreligious people adopt children. I understand that. But where is adoption more commonly practiced? It's more commonly practiced among those of the Christian faith. They are the ones who promote it and talk about it more often than not. Not that they do it exclusively, but they do it more often than others. So that would be of a religious motivation. Another one is chapter 2. This one is obedience. Notice the obedience of Esther toward Mordecai. She knows that Mordecai is her superior because he adopted her. And notice her obedience. In chapter 2, verse 10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. She should not 
make them known. Also 2.20, chapter 2, verse 20. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. As she had done when under his care. Another one is that Mordecai. Mordecai honors the king's life. Mind you, this is a pagan king of another race. However, Mordecai knows he's a king, and all kings have their due respect. There is due respect that ought to be given to them, and that due respect means there should not be assassination attempts when there's no legitimate, valid cause for that. We should not be seeking to revolt and undermine the authorities of the country by assassination like this. There was no valid basis for it. And in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 21, 221, in those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, remember Mordecai is one of the servants or officials of the king, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Mordecai respects the, the preservation of innocent human life, and especially this authority, the king himself. Another religious aspect is also from Mordecai in chapter 3. Mordecai rejects the worship of Haman. He rejects worshiping him, implying to him that he possesses deity, that he is a god or a son of a god or anything of that nature. This is what infuriated Haman toward Mordecai. It says in chapter 3, verse 2, 3 verse 2, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Keep in mind that throughout the Old Testament, it is not a sin to bow down before a higher official. It's not a sin to do so. After all, 1 Samuel 25, Abigail does that to David. And later in, in 1 Kings, others do that in the presence of David. And this happens in many examples throughout the Old Testament. Jacob did that before Esau in, in Genesis 33. Jacob did it before his brother as he was reuniting with his brother after about 20 years. So it's not wrong to show honor to somebody else by bowing in his presence. That itself is not a problem. That's not a sin. But if it implies that the person has deity, then don't do it. Because that would be worshiping someone or something other than God. And that's what Mordecai refused to do. Another, when the decree, the first decree was issued, notice the reaction of Mordecai and his people, and even Esther and her people, uh, the, the women in the, the court. What happened in chapter 4? Notice the reaction, the kind of religious reaction they had to the appalling decree. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went in, and he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. We also know later in the chapter that Esther and the, the women around her, they also did the same thing. They fasted for three days. What often accompanies fasting? What accompanies sackcloth? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer accompanies, and prayer implies that you believe in God. You believe in a sovereign God, a God who can overcome these earthly circumstances. So, that's another 
chapter 7, verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 6. We continue with these religious references. Chapter 7, verse 6. Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. She called him wicked. The opposite of wicked is righteous. And wicked and righteous are determined based on the law of God, based on the law of Moses. Whoever obeys and acts in accordance with the law of Moses, he's righteous. Whoever disobeys and transgresses, he is wicked. And these are legal terms according to God's own word from the law of Moses. He's considered wicked. Also, another aspect of spiritual or religious implications is chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, no, chapter 4, verse 14. 4, 14. These are the words of Mordecai to Esther. 4, 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Why did you attain royalty? Not because of chance. No God of fortune. No happenstance. Nothing like that. This is not an accident. You were raised to prominence for a purpose. What is the purpose? He's implying that providence, the providence of God, is at work to elevate Esther so that she can be the source of deliverance for the people. Notice also another one, chapter 6, verse 13. Another spiritual implication. Chapter 6, verse 13. Now this is what Zeresh, the wife of Haman, and Haman's friends say. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I believe they would say this because they know something of the Jewish law. They know something of the Mosaic law. They know something of the Old Testament and the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic promises that the one who blesses you will be blessed and the one who curses you will be cursed. Genesis 12 verse 3. And that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which is, and in your seed through Christ all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that your descendants, both physical and spiritual descendants, will be like the sand of the seashore and like the stars of heaven. Only with that kind of background would they be able to make such a statement. They would not make it otherwise. Continuing on the religious argument. What was the just penalty for Haman and the just penalty for the enemies of the Jews when they attacked the Jews. It was death. Haman intended death for Mordecai and the Jews, so he deserved to die. The enemies of the Jews throughout the realm, they intended death for the Jews, so when the Jews defended themselves, they didn't just gather them up and uh, insist that they pay a fine. They didn't gather them up and send them all to prison. They didn't do anything like that. They killed him. Why? Because that's what they intended for the Jews. We see that this was permitted and expected by God in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. 19, 15. A single witness shall not rise up against the man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against the man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Notice that. 
You shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. If he wanted his brother, his innocent brother, to pay a fine, then he should pay a fine. If he wanted him executed, then he should be executed. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you, and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an, uh, never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Note that this is what's practiced even by pagans, those who don't have the law of Moses in hand. It's practiced by pagans because they have the law of God in their conscience and they have natural law, the law of God evident in nature. The, the natural and common way of understanding things they had the natural law and they had the law of God in their conscience. What happened when Jonah imperiled the mariners in Jonah chapter 1? What was the solution? Jonah imperiled the mariners at sea. And jo Jonah said, you need to throw me overboard. Jonah had to risk his own life because he risked their life. And he knew that. That's why that was the resolution to their problem. And then in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, remember there also there were some enemies of Daniel among the officials. They maliciously accused Daniel. They wanted him to die in the lion's den. God miraculously preserved him. And then what does the Persian king do there? to retaliate, to execute a just penalty. He throws those malicious officials in, and their families into the lion's den for them to be killed. As they intended to do to Daniel, it was done to them. And this is the same understanding of a just retribution instituted by God that's at practice here in the book of Esther. Another is the Feast of Purim. How is it possible, this feast instituted in chapter 9, how is it possible for the Feast of Purim not to be a religious festival? That's the way the Jews practiced it throughout history. If they practiced it that way throughout history, it must have started that way. It must have started as a celebration of the victory that God gave to them to preserve them and destroy their enemies. In fact, they declare... When they celebrate, they say, they call Mordecai the blessed Mordecai, and they call Haman the cursed Haman. And they praise God for that. And then, lastly, a last evidence of religious implications. Chapter 8, verse 17. Chapter 8, verse 17. By this point, by this point, the second decree has been issued. And when that happened, at, in 8.17, look towards the end of that verse, it says, And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Many of them became Jews. They converted. They became Jews. Obviously, this doesn't mean they became Jews ethnically because you can only be that way by birth. They became Jews in terms of religion and custom and faith and practice. They became Jews that way. Chapter 9 and verse 27. Chapter 9, 27. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and... For all those who allied themselves with them, and all those who allied themselves with them, so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. They have conversion taking place. And I'm sure some of this would have been genuine conversion, and some of this would have been simply because they wanted the favor of the Jewish people and the favor of the Jewish God. When conversion takes place, there's always going to be some who do it truly and some who do it falsely. However, they did it. And they, they did it for religious reasons and for protection and for the favor of God. And when they become Jews, 
all the other things that the Jews do for their festivals and all the rest of the Bible of the Old Testament, it's very, very religious. So inevitably, what we have here is religion. Even if it is implicitly present, we have this as a very religious book. Therefore, we should not expunge it and tear it out of our Bibles. We need to keep it in our Bibles. Let's continue. Another aspect, another aspect of this book is the date and authorship of the book. The date and authorship of the book. According to critics of the Bible, many so-called scholars who are supposed to approach things objectively, they disdain a lot of the contents of the book. They do not like the support of the Jewish people. That's one thing they don't like, and I, I hope I've answered some of that objection. That's one thing they don't like. But another thing they don't like is that they can't fathom that the Persian Empire or any foreign people would help the Jews or would be kind to the Jews. They can't fathom that. So what they do is they say that this is a mixture of historicity and fiction. This is a mixture of some legend, fable, and fiction with some historical details. Yes, we know that there was a Median Persian Empire. Yes, we do know that there was a Persian king named Xerxes or Ahasuerus and, and other names of the Persian kings. We do know that. And the author of the book, he does know some of the customs, for example, that the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. He knows that the king cannot be approached unsummoned. He knows these kinds of things. So he does know some historical details, but he really doesn't know what he's talking about on the whole. The modern critic knows better. So they say the book was written about anywhere from 100 to 300 years before Christ's ministry, before the time of Christ and the apostles. That means about the 2nd or 3rd century B.C. However, according to the information within the book and some information outside the Bible, the two we can correlate for the book of Esther to have occurred in the 400s B.C. Likely around the time of this king, and we know that his reign, Ahasuerus, chapter 1, verse 1, Ahasuerus, who's also known as Xerxes, or Xerxes I, his reign was from 486 to 465 B.C. 486 to 465 B.C. And according to the chronology of the book, there's about a dozen years that transpire within this book of Esther, which is ample time, according to what we know of the length of this king's reign. His reign was about 20 years long. And we have only about 12 years in this book. Not only that, let's look at some internal evidence for what I believe to be Mordecai as author of the book. Mordecai as author. Let's look at some internal evidence. Chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. And, and there, so in verse 5, he is in Susa, the capital. In this point in Persian history, this was the capital. Susa, or Shushan, was the capital of the Persian Empire. Later it became another city called Persepolis. But now it is Susa, or Shushan. It was the capital. This fits this time in history. And Mordecai is there. He lives there in the capital. If he lives there in the capital, and we know later what his duties were, he was a servant of the king, 
he would have been familiar with the Persian customs, the Persian laws, the Persian practices, the Persian language, the Persian people. He would have been familiar with it all. He would have been acquainted as an official there. Another piece of evidence. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. 2, 19 to 23. Here's where we find that he's an official. Look at 2.19. It says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. He was sitting at the king's gate. Well, enemies of the king and all kinds of miscreants and bums don't sit there at the king's gate. Those who are there for the king's business sit at the king's gate. They're the ones who are permitted. Verse 21. While Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, so forth, he hears about this plot. He's regularly sitting at the king's gate. Therefore, he's well acquainted with what goes on in the court of the king. Chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. 3 2, here's where we have that Mordecai is a servant. It says, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Mordecai is one of the king's servants, one of his officials at the gate. All the other ones bow down, but he doesn't bow down. Again, showing his proximity and knowledge of the king and the, and the Persian Empire. Chapter 4, chapter 4, verses 1 and following. It also mentions that Mordecai, he is known, he's a known quantity, not only at the gate, but throughout the city. Chapter 4, verse 1. When he heard about this decree, the first decree of the king, says he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each and every province where the king's command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. There he's known, and as well in chapter 3.15 it says, The city of Susa was in confusion. The city of Susa was in confusion. It's in confusion because they hear of the decree and they see that this one official, Jewish official, is weeping and wailing and fasting and puts on sackcloth and ashes. Another evidence of his familiarity not only with the city but with the people of the city. Chapter 5. Chapter 5 verses 9 to 14. 5, 9 to 14. Here too, we have evidence that uh, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate. He's not doing whatever the other people are doing. And it says in 5.13, Haman says of Mordecai, Yet all of this does not satisfy me Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, which shows that it was customary for him to receive this kind of religious homage, and Mordecai customarily did not do it. He was there regularly. Continue into chapter 6. Chapter 6. And verses 10 to 12 here... Mordecai is suddenly elevated to Haman's dismay. He's suddenly elevated and he's receiving all of this praise and honor from the people. Again, this would mean he would have even greater access to the court. He's beginning to have greater access to the court. Chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 9. Mordecai's fame is known in the court. Because Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, chapter 7, verse 9, who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. Harbona knows that Mordecai spoke good on behalf of the king. 
chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now Mordecai is promoted. He's elevated to a high position. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, Mordecai has the king's signet ring. Now, he can issue decrees in the king's name, which he does. He does so seven Chapter 8, verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 7. So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews, as you see fit, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for a decree which is written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's signet ring, may not be revoked. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is, the month Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on steeds, sired by the royal stud. There you have it. Mordecai it has this kind of authority to issue a decree. And then verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Rejoiced at their decree to be able to defend themselves. Mordecai's got the royal robes. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 3. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who are doing the king's business, assisted the Jews. There's the evidence I said, that they assisted the Jews to defend themselves because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. They knew all throughout the realm, from Ethiopia to India, they all heard about Mordecai's exaltation. And the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Chapter 9, verse 20. Now we'll see. Now all of this is circumstantial. Now we'll see something very explicit. 9.20. Then Mordecai recorded these events. Did Mordecai write or have his scribes write? Of course. It says it right there in chapter 9, verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events. And he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, instructing them and obliging them to celebrate these days, the Feast of Purim. Continue reading. 9.29 Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim, and he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. And the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. This phrase, written in the book, written in the book, I believe means it was written in the canon of Scripture. It was placed in the canon of Scripture. Chapter 10, verse 2. 10-2. 
all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Now, after all this, why is it incredible? Why do we need to deny out of hand? Why do we need to reject the idea that Mordecai, an eyewitness, could easily have been the author of this book? I think it makes great sense. It makes better sense than the skeptics who say, no, no, these things were recorded two or three hundred years after the fact. No. Written by a contemporary, Mordecai himself. All right, now, another aspect of this book. When we read the book of Esther, we sometimes are thinking, doesn't the Bible say, even didn't Jesus himself say, in Luke chapter 24, 25 to 27, did he not say that the Old Testament was about him? Did he not say that the Old Testament taught about him? For example, Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And according to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, that the Old Testament, and the things of the Old Testament, are copies of the heavenly things, as chapter 9, 23 says. Or, as chapter 10, verse 1 says, that the law, and for that matter, all the Old Testament, is a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things. So, if Christ says in Luke 24 that all of the Old Testament is about Him, and Hebrews 9.23 and Hebrews 10.1 speak of the Old Testament as being a copy or a type, a shadow of heavenly things, of Christological and heavenly eternal things, if that's what it says, then that's what it is. How then could Esther fit that? For one, if all of the Jews in the kingdom were massacred, could it not be possible that they would not have had enough people to return or enough people from the tribe of Judah to return, to survive, if they survived, to live in the land of Israel so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem? Isn't it necessary for them to be preserved? We don't know exactly whether they would have, uh, whether there would have been Judeans completely massacred or not, people from the tribe of Judah completely massacred or not. We don't know if this decree would have been issued uh, and su successful. But that is one issue. The Jewish race needed to be preserved at least until the time that Christ was born into the world. Also, notice that Esther was a no-name who became a great name. She was a no-name who became a great name. And Esther was also one who had all of her people in her hands. The destiny of her people were in her hands. Her own blood. Flesh and blood were in her hands. Well, doesn't that match Christ? Christ was a no-name, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, preached and ministered in, and lived in Capernaum during his ministry, 
and he was a no-name. Yet, in due time, he was elevated, and in due time, when he was elevated, first, the glory of the cross, and when he went up on the cross, he gave his life, he risked his life on behalf of ours, so that he might save us and deliver us from death. Did he? And then, the reversal of the circumstances. Right now, and during the time of Christ, and also our, our life, right now, we are the ones who suffer persecution. We're the ones who suffer humiliation. We're the ones who are sidelined and ridiculed by the world. Jesus was treated that way. In due time, He was raised from the dead, and He ascended into heaven. And, in a full sense, when He returns, He will reign forever, and He'll crush all of His enemies. The sword of His word is going to come out of His mouth, and He's going to smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, Revelation 19, 11-21 says. He's going to do that. And who else will do that? His church, His body, His people. His people in faith, those who believe in Him, whether Jew or Gentile, will be with Him and reign over our enemies, will crush and annihilate our enemies. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. And we're also going to judge angels. He will give us that kind of an exalted role in due time, on the Day of Judgment. So, the book of Esther does also give us some idea of what our faith experienced in the past and what our faith is like. And it gives us an example of how just as they overcame, Jesus overcame, we shall overcome. All right, I think that ends our study of the introductory issues of the book. I went longer than I thought. <laughs> All right, uh, any questions? I've got two. two. Uh, the first one is, could you say that...